Gresham College presents Shakespeare Sonnets and the Use of Personification by Professor Belinda Jack. Good evening and welcome, and thank you very much for coming. So this academic year, that's to say since the autumn, um, we've been looking at various aspects of rhetoric, um, which can be briefly def defined as the art of persuasion, in relation to a number of famous works of English literature. To begin with, we looked at Jane Austen's Persuasion, um, her last completed novel, in relation to the rhetorical trope of irony. Then we moved on to Dickens and hyperbole, or exaggeration, um, in relation to his novel Hard Times, again a very late novel. And tonight we embark on Shakespeare's sonnets, or a few of them anyway, in relation to the rhetorical trope of personification, or prosopopeia, which is the Greek term. This term derives from a conflation of, of two Greek words. One is the um, Greek for face, prosopon, face or person, and the other, poiein, to make or to do. In other words, to, to make yourself, your face, another person. And this is the sort of earliest origins of the idea of personification. Well, what I want to do is not simply to illustrate certain kinds of rhetorical trope in relation to um, certain great works of literature, but to suggest that in the hands of the really great writers, any rhetorical trope which has been defined is somehow extended or subverted or tweaked. In other words, rhetoric as a quasi-science always lags a little bit behind what writers are actually doing with language. Rhetoric isn't a, a stable discipline. Um, it has to move with the times and catch up, in a sense, with what writers are doing with language. Um, first, a few words about the sonnets, um, and then about personification and its history. Um, because perhaps surprisingly, the idea of personification has a very long and very rich history. Well, the first written work bearing Shakespeare's own name was the erotic narrative Venus and Adonis of 1593. Um, this is Titian's um, representation of it, which gives you an idea of it, quite a fiery, feisty piece. And it draws on a very rich vocabulary to explore love, praise for the loved one, sexual desire, and indeed the power of rhetoric. And the poem was immensely successful, um, so much so that for many of Shakespeare's contemporaries, uh, for some time he was really considered first and foremost a poet rather than a playwright. Work on Venus and Adonis took place um, in the period 1592 to 4. And, of course, this was during a period of plague when the theatres closed and theatre companies went on tour. Um, they moved as far away from London as quickly as they could. But Shakespeare stayed behind, and it's generally supposed that he used that period um, to start writing poetry. First, Venus and Adonis, and then The Rape of Lucrece, um, this is Titian's representation of it. Again, um, a very dramatic story. And a few years later, the sonnets emerged. So, and it's also likely that future 
bursts of, of poetic activity by Shakespeare um, also took place um, during periods of plague. So the poetry is very much the product of circumstance and very bleak circumstance. Uh, we know that each plague here in London took the lives of about a quarter of the population. Um, so they must have been very strange times to live through. And the fact that Shakespeare ruminates so much on the passage of time and mortality is perhaps not surprising, uh, living through times like those. Now, there are 154 sonnets, which is why we will only be looking at a few tonight. And they explore time passing, love, eroticism, beauty, mortality. Now, all these things are, in a sense, transient, and so I think it's reasonable to say that Shakespeare's primary preoccupation is actually with time. Now, the first 126 sonnets are addressed to a young man, and the last 28 to a woman. And the sonnets to a young man describe a passionate and obsessional love. And what has long been debated is the nature of the love expressed, whether it's platonic or physical. And the first 17 sonnets um, in this first cycle um, are generally referred to as the procreation sonnets, um, the idea being that the young man be persuaded to marry and have children in order to immortalise his beauty, transferring it to the next generation. Others imply criticism of the young man because of his interest in other poets. And then the sonnets of the so-called Dark Lady sequence, sonnets 127 to 154, contrast with the Fair Youth poems um, being overtly sexual um, in the figuring of passion. So many critics point to the spiritual love for the Fair Youth in contrast to the sexual love for the Dark Lady. And with both the Fair Youth and the Dark Lady, there have, needless to say, been umpteen attempts to identify um, identify them with real historical individuals and to construe Shakespeare's sexuality. But that's not what we will be looking at tonight. One other persuasive um, reading of the sonnets, which is very obvious in criticism of the sonnets, that's to say, explorations of the sonnets, is that they're in part at least pastiche and parodies of Petrarchan love sonnets. The, that aspects of the sonnets are biographical, I think, is beyond doubt but the extent of the biographical origins remain fiercely debated, and I think always will. The critical appreciation of the sonnets has come and gone over time. Um, during the 18th century, um, their popularity was relatively low, but with the rise of Romanticism, interest was renewed and grew greatly during the course of the 19th century. And today... The sonnet's reputation is global, and there's no major written language, either real or indeed invented, um, into which the sonnets haven't been translated, um, including Japanese, Turkish, Spanish, Portuguese, Afrikaans, Albanian, Arabic, Hebrew, Welsh, Yiddish, and I've now discovered Esperanto. Um, it must be very strange reading the sonnets in Esperanto. <laughs> um, so they undoubted, undoubtedly constitute one of the great works of world literature, so why have I chosen to explore this large body of not immediately accessible poems? I think it's fair to say that the poems are actually quite difficult um, in relation to the rhetorical trope of personification. 
Well, personification is a trickier trope um, that, than one might at first suppose. <clears throat> I'll give a couple of obvious definitions. The first would be the attribution... I don't know why we've got the Grim Reaper there. I'll come back to the Grim Reaper. <clears throat> the attribution of a personal nature or human characteristics to something non-human or the representation of an abstract quality in human form, the Grim Reaper, <coughs> to represent death. Or a figure intended to represent an abstract quality, for example, a rose to represent love. Now, in the modern period, broadly defined, personification was, a, for a long time, equated with allegory. And personificational allegory, until recently, was considered, and I quote, Wooden, tedious, obvious, simple, and juvenile. Uh, that's from a very interesting book by James Paxson called The Poetics of Personification, published by Cambridge University Press in 1994. And he is looking at a body of critical work, um, starting with I.A. Richards' famous Practical Criticism of 1929, also including Northrop Fry's famous The Anatomy of Criticism of 1957, A. Fletcher's book on allegory of 1964, and Stedman's The Lamb and the Elephant of 1974. And in all those um, very seminal um, critical works, personification comes out rather badly. But as I say, the trope has a very long history. Aristotle describes, and I quote, Homer's common practice of giving metaphorical life to lifeless things. That's the end of the quotation. But he has, doesn't actually use the word prosopopeia. The first description of personification, more or less as we understand it today, in Western rhetorical theory, occurs in Demetrius of Phalerum's 3rd century BC treatise, simply known as On Style. His definition is brief but relatively broad. He writes, and I quote, Another figure of thought, the so-called prosopopeia, may be employed to produce energy of style, as in the words, and, I, and he then quotes, imagine that your ancestors, or Hellas, or your native land, assuming a woman's form, should address such and such a reproach to you. I think that gives a sense of the dramatic quality of personification. Quintilian was another major contributor to the definition of the trope, and in his Institutio Auroratia, he treats prosopopeia at great length. And as Paxson, um, the critic I quoted earlier, says, and I quote, Quintilian's final pronouncement on personification in the Institutio displays a semiological crux in terms more sociologically loaded for poetics in the 1990s. In other words, Quintilian is already considering aspects um, of the complexities of the trope, which aren't really fully explored until relatively recently. And he quotes Quintilian, Further, it is not merely true that the variety required in impersonation will be in proportion to the variety presented by the case, for impersonation demands even greater variety, since it involves the portrayal of the emotions of children, women, nations, and even voiceless things, all of which require to be represented in character. Um, I won't um, explore his point about women, but of course he's talking about women as a point um, in world history when women very often didn't have a voice. 
Now, the sophistication of Quintilian's insights um, are unsurpassed until the Renaissance, when there's a, a, another very sort of excited debate about it. Um, in 1675, Bernard Lamy, in De l'art de parler, on the art of speech, which was a manual for speech writers and poets, um, he looks very carefully at personification, and for the first time, he associates it very much with strong emotion. Its origin is seen very much in terms of strong emotion. And he says, when a passion is violent, it renders them mad in some measure that are possessed with it. In that case, we entertain ourselves with rocks and with dead men as if they were living and make them speak as if they had souls. So here, for the first time, the suggestion is that the impulse towards personification has an almost psychotic, delusional, um, hallucinatory dimension. By the 18th century, personification has become such a common subject of discussion that it's very difficult to give any sort of overview. Um, and most commentators are certainly not concise in the 18th century. Um, Henry Home, Lord Kames, in his Elements of Criticism, which was a manual for critics and writers, devotes 13 pages to a discussion of personification. And most of Kames's examples are taken from, from either Shakespeare or Virgil. And as for Lamy, it's highly charged emotional states that give rise to personification. And this leads Kames to divide personification into two um, different types passionate personification, um, which stimulates the invention of characters in discourse and is superior to the other form because it originates in sincere, strong feeling. Descriptive personification, um, the other kind, is mere ornament. Um, Kames was no great friend of personification, uh, warning writers against frequent use of a figure which he described as generally of, and I quote, ridiculous appearance, and in a similar vein, he termed Virgil's overuse of the trope insufferable. Um, I do enjoy the lack of restraint of 18th century writers. Um, 21st century academics tend to be so sort of dry and reasonable. Um, the 18th century French tradition of rhetorical discussion of the trope is more theoretically rigorous and reaches its apogee in the writings of Pierre Fontanier in his Magisterial Manuel Classique pour l'étude des tropes ou éléments de la science du sens des mots, the classical manual for the study of tropes or elements of the science of the meaning of words, published in 1821. And it's a seminal um, and very important work which was edited by um, a modern critic, and I'll mention him in a minute. Now, his definition is concise and original in terms of the relations that he establishes between personification and other kinds of rhetorical trope. And he writes, personification involves making an inanimate, non-sentient being or an abstract and wholly ideal being, a kind of real physical being endowed with feeling and life, what we would call a person. And this simply is a function of speech or by a completely verbal fiction. It takes place as a function of metonymy Synecdote or metaphor. So, personification, according to Fontenier, concerns life and non life, 
sentience, abstract formlessness, substantial form, the power of speech, and so on. And he also explores the relationship between personification, metaphor, metonymy, and synecdote. Metaphor briefly defined as a figure of speech in, a, in which a word or phrase is applied to an object or action to which it's not literally applicable. For example, all the world's a stage. Metonymy, which might be described as the substitution of the name of an attribute or adjunct for that of the thing meant. For example, talking about the crown when we mean the monarch or the queen. And synecdote might crudely be defined as a figure of speech in which a part is made to represent the whole or vice versa, as in England lost by six goals, meaning the English football team. Now, recent theorists of rhetoric, um, including Gérard Genette, who edited the Fontainier, uh, Figure du discours, and particularly Paul de Man, have made the study of personification central to literary theory. For de Man, personification is, and I quote, the master trope of poetic discourse, Rhetorics come a long way from the time when personification was considered wooden, tedious, obvious, simple, and juvenile. So how does Shakespeare use personification in the sonnets? Or, to put it another way, what does Shakespeare do with the trope? This is what I really want to explore, this idea that there aren't simply these rhetorical tropes that are exploited by writers, um, as a painter might exploit paint, but that rhetoric as a, as a discipline, as I say, quasi-scientific discipline, is always slightly behind uh, what writers may be doing. So I want to consider four interwoven themes um, which are prevalent in the sonnets, time, ageing, love, and the art of poetry making itself. So I'd like to begin with sonnet 60, um, and this is read by Gilgood. Like as the waves make toward the pebbled shore, so do our minutes hasten to their end, each changing place with that which goes before. In sequent toil, all forwards do contend. Nativity, once in the main of light, crawls to maturity, wherewith being crowned, crooked eclipses gainst his glory fight, and time that gave doth now his gift confound. Time doth transfix the flourish set on youth, and delves the parallels in beauty's brow, feeds on the rarities of nature's truth, and nothing stands but for his scythe to mow. And yet to times in hope my verse shall stand, praising thy worth despite his cruel hand. So the sonnet obviously explores the idea of mortality, and only in the final couplet um, is the loved one mentioned, praising thy worth despite his cruel hand, as the one who might be saved from the total oblivion of time's annihilation. But despite the rebellious tone, the closing couplet hardly rescues the reader from the feeling that everything is mortal and must pass away, for the minutes and our minutes spent remembering continue to advance in the same way as the waves pounding the shore. 
So just briefly, um, in case there's anyone here um, who has any difficulty with the language, um, the like as the waves makes towards the pebbled shore, meaning in like manner, so just as the waves make towards the pebbled shore, make towards meaning travel in the direction of, so just as the waves make their way to the shore, so do our minutes hasten to their end. And the imagery here is of the dissipation of every wave as it breaks on the shore. And the sea may be a strange simile to appeal to for our mortality as it has a kind of permanence, but the individual waves can be convincingly equated to the disappearance of the minutes, each changing place with that which goes before. I think when we watch the waves, it looks as though they're endlessly replacing each other. In sequent toil, all forwards do contend. In sequent toil, in consecutive laborious movement, um, toil suggests exhausting labour, the relentless struggle of life. And the word toil in Shakespearean English is often associated with the conflict of war. So maybe the waves march forward like soldiers to fight and expire on the shore. Nativity, once in the main light, well, nativity, obviously, birth, um, a new-born child's applied, and the main of life means the full glare of light. The main refers to the sea, and being in the main implies being out in the open sea. Crawls to maturity wherewith being crowned, well, crawls as a baby crawls, but also implies perhaps the slowness of time passing when we're young and the slowness that also equates with the crabbedness of age. And wherewith simply means with which, so in other words, maturity. The crooked eclipses gainst his glory fight. Crooked eclipses, meaning the malignant eclipses of sun or moon. Eclipses at the time were considered to be harmful, and sudden misfortunes were often attributed um, to an eclipse. So here, eclipse means a, a blight caused by bad luck. And an eclipse may also be described in terms of the struggle of darkness against light or figuratively the glory of youth against old age. And time that gave doth now his gift confound. His gift, well, time's gift is life and everything it brings, um, confound here meaning destroy. Time doth transfix the flourish set on youth, flourish time of perfection, the splendour of youth, Youth and transfix, meaning to run through, to pierce with a lance or a sword. We use transfix entirely metaphorically. We're transfixed by someone we love. Um, but uh, literally it means actually to be pierced with something sharp. And delves the parallel in beauty's brow. Delves the parallels, digs the furrows. Parallels were defensive ditches used in siege warfare. So here we have another um, another implication um, or another lexis to do with war and the lines are also compared with the wrinkles which line the forehead as the human face ages feeds on the rarities of nature's truth um, the rarities of nature's truth images of a rapacious creature feeding on rare things um, truth always rhymes with youth in the sonnets and nothing stands but for his scythe to mow Stands meaning exists. Um, when we talk about corn standing, we mean it's, it's ripe. And his scythe will his time scythe. Um, the scythe was used for mowing hay, but time and death um, are often um, portrayed, as in the woodcut we saw earlier, as a skeleton carrying a scythe. 
And yet, to times in hope, my verse shall stand. Stand again, meaning exists, but also stands up to, defies. And the repetition of stand, stands, is a plosi, plosi being a figure of speech in which a word is separated or repeated by way of emphasis. So we have, my verse shall stand. Um, in the previous line, we had a nothing stands, but for his scythe to, to, to mow. Praising thy worth despite his cruel hand, thy worth, although the poem leads up to this, is the only mention of the youth um, in the sonnet, and the rarities of nature's truth and the flourish set on are references to the poet's loved one. His cruel hand is, of course, time's cruel hand. We also speak of the hand of a clock. Now, Shakespeare is drawing here on Ovid, amongst others, and I say drawing on, um, appropriating certain aspects um, of some of Ovid's metamorphoses um, or parodying them. Um, in Metamorphoses, we read, um, but look, as every wave drives other forth, and that that comes behind both thrusteth and is thrust itself, even so the times by kind do fly and follow both at once and evermore renew. For that that was before is left, and straight there doth ensue another that was never erst. Um, and that's a translation, an early um, translation of the Metamorphoses. Now, Ovid brings the, movement, brings the movement of the waves into relation with time, which is obviously the opening conceit in Shakespeare's sonnet. And time is personified. The times do fly. But Shakespeare's use of personification is much more layered and complicated. The last of the 60 minutes of the hour are represented by the numbering of the sonnet, sonnet 60. Now, there's some dispute about whether the sonnets were arranged in precisely the order they're in by Shakespeare or not, um, but certainly some of them, I think, um, were almost certainly, um, and sonnet 60 um, clearly corresponds to the 60 minutes. And so this is a kind of bizarre kind of personification as the abstract notion of a unit of time um, is personified in the number 60 in, in the poem itself. The minutes are personified, they're described as hastening to their end. I'll just go back. Yeah, hastening to their end. Well, to hasten is to go more quickly than one would normally. Um, but the point about chronological time is that it passes with mathematical precision. It can't speed up or slow down, except in terms of our own subjective experience of it. And the waves in the first line make towards the pebbled shore, suggesting a kind of intentionality. Um, and the comparison of the forward movement of the waves and the forward movement of minutes are both described as in sequent toil and forwards do contend. Constant types of personification. Um, waves, of course, are not really animate objects in a sense. Um, they only move forward as a function of the energy provided by the wind. And minics only move forward in the representation of them on an analogue watch or clock face. Nativity or birth is then personified. It crawls to maturity. Babies crawl. Humans slowly develop from childhood to maturity. Further, nativity, that which is born, is crowned, alluding perhaps to Christ's crown of thorns. 
The main light refers to the open sea and ties in with the image of the pebbled shore, a terminus, a resting place in the first line. The crooked eclipses fight, another personification. Um, Eclipses can't possibly fight in any literal sense, and they're both a product of asymmetrical movements by the planets and crooked in the sense of malign in their effects on humankind. Old people also become crooked. Time is then again personified. Time that gave, gave, doth his gift confound. Um, Confound meaning destroyed. And this line alludes to the Book of Common Prayer, the order for the burial of the dead from Job 1.21. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. So could you say there's a sense in which time is now being personified as God? This immediately changes in the next line. Time doth transfix. Well, in modern English, transfix is metaphorical, but as I said earlier, in Shakespearean English, it means to pierce or impale, suggesting the scythe traditionally associated with time, the grim reaper. However, a counteracting sense of transfix also means to fix or imprint. And this is developed by the following line, which implies that time destroys the lineaments of beauty, not by destroying, but by caricaturing them. Time also delves the parallels, meaning digs parallel lines, another personification. Time also feeds, suggesting a rapacious, destructive appetite, which is animal or human trait, and not something obviously associated with time. And finally, the poet's verse is personified, standing rather than being cut down by time's scythe. Well, personification has been described as a radical tendency of the human psyche embedded in the very roots of language, basic to every impulse towards dramatic representation. Um, That's a critic called Bronson. And Sonnet 60 seems to bear this out. The relentlessness of time and human mortality are two of the great themes of poetry, and the sonnet in particular. And there seems to me to be a wonderful tension between our complete lack of control of the passing of time, our lack of control in the face of our mortality, and the extraordinary rigours of the sonnet form. I mean, it has its flexibilities, um, but it is a very ordered form. The Shakespearean sonnet is made up of 14 lines, made up of three quatrains, That's three groups of four lines, followed by a couplet of two lines. The rhyme scheme is ABAB, that's the first four lines, CDCD, the next four EFEF, and then the final couplet GG. Um, This is called the English sonnet, or the Shakespearean sonnet, to distinguish it from the Petrarchan, Italian Petrarchan sonnet, which has two parts. And the metre of Shakespeare's sonnets, and many of his plays, is the most common poetic metre in English, the ambic pentameter. Pentameter refers to a line that's divided into five sections or feet, and an iamb is made up of two syllables. The first syllable is slightly accented, generally, and the second syllable is strongly accented, giving the rhythm da-dum, da-dum. And a complete poetic line of five iambs sounds like da-dum, 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 da-dum. each changing place with that which goes before. For the sake of effect, some iams work differently. 
The third iamb of this line is a trochi, which is a foot consisting of one long or stressed syllable followed by one short or unstressed syllable, which gives us the rhythm like as the waves make towards the pebbled shore. Complete, well, significant change of rhythm. Um, and I think one could say that this reversal of the rhythm just at this point enacts the movement of the wave falling back on itself and then running forward, um, mimicking at the level of language the movement of the waves. So in some sense, I think one might argue that the poem itself is a complex personification of the abstract notion of the conquest of time by the immortality of the poem, which is a concrete object. And I'll say about, more about this later. Um, I want to go on to look at a couple more poems first. I think one can reasonably propose a not altogether different reading of Sonnet 63. One of the fascinating things about the sonnets is that they reinvent themselves. You see the same images, the same tropes, the same ideas, um, the same rhythms uh, recurring in slightly different form um, as you read through. And Catherine Duncan-Jones, who's one of the two great editors of the sonnets, um, says in her note to um, this sonnet, Sonnet 63, and I quote, anticipating a time when the fair youth will be as old and decrepit as he is now, the speaker makes provision against the youth's loss of beauty by preserving it in poetry. It is surely not by chance that this sonnet on the severe changes brought about by the ageing process is positioned as number 63, the grand climactric, seven times nine, a figure associated with major life changes. Also, we are now exactly halfway through the fair youth sequence, which ends with the imperfect 126. So let's hear Gilgood reading Sonnet 63. Against my love shall be as I am now, with time's injurious hand crushed and o'erworn, when hours have drained his blood and filled his brow with lines and wrinkles, when his youthful morn hath travelled on to age's steepy night, and all those beauties whereof now he's king are vanishing, or vanished out of sight, stealing away the treasure of his spring. For such a time do I now fortify against confounding age's cruel knife, that he shall never cut from memory my sweet love's beauty, though my lover's life. His beauty shall in these black lines be seen, and they shall live, and he in them still green. So, um, just very briefly, I think this is a more accessible sonnet than Sonnet 60 in some ways, but against, here meaning in preparation for the time when my love shall be as old as I am now, with time's injurious hand crushed and uh, worn, when hours have drained his blood and filled his brow. And there's a query about the filled or whether it mightn't have been filed um, because of the peculiarities of Shakespearean spelling and also the problems of deciding on definitive editions and so on. Um, it might be defiled, um, so carved, which goes back to the image of, of Sonnet 60, with lines and wrinkles. When his youthful morn hath travelled on to age's steepy night, 
steeply meaning difficult to ascend. And all those beauties whereof now he's king are vanishing or vanished out of sight, stealing away the treasure of his spring, i.e. his youth. For such a time do I now fortify against confounding age's cruel knife, again a sharp instrument associated with the passage of time, that he shall never cut from memory my sweet love's beauty, though my lover's life. His beauty shall in these black lines be seen, and they shall live, and he in them still green. Now, it's interesting hearing Gielgud's rendering of this, um, because most editors see an ambiguity in the green. We talk about keeping someone's memory green, and we associate greenness with freshness and youth. Um, but other editors point out that we also associate greenness with acidity, um, with bitterness, and therefore could there be a suggestion of the callousness of youth. Um, and I think that's a wonderful ambiguity, that one can read it either way. Um, but I, I think the way Gilgood reads it um, is very much the more positive um, interpretation there. His, his voice goes up um, when he says, in them still green. Um, so that may be his reading, but certainly... Um, Others have suggested that there's a great ambiguity here. So time again in line two is personified, crushing and wearing out the poet's love, and the hours too are personified, draining the lover's blood and filling his brow with lines and wrinkles. And it's not just the youth who will travail, travailed on. Travel here meaning both to labour and to travel, but the youth's mourn. And it's the beauties whereof he is king, which are vanishing or will vanish. Time is again personified, age's cruel knife. And the blade has the potential to cut, but of course blades only cut when they're wielded by someone. And what might be cut is not the poet's life, but the paper on which the poet has celebrated his love for him. And the lines of the poet are personified, they shall live on even after the lover's death. And the black lines referred to here appropriate the lines in line four. The literal blackness of the lines contrasts also with the metaphorical greenness of the final line. Personification of Sonnet 60 is obviously reinforced in Sonnet 63. There are a whole lot of images that are picked up on. In both time, art is armed with a sharp weapon, but one which celebrates the fact that in a sense, the pen is mightier than the sword. And proof of this is the existence of the poems we have here. In a sense, they personify the immortality of poetry. Um, I think there's another way of understanding that too, because Shakespeare read widely and obviously draws on and works within a tradition. And so there is that sense in which all poetry has a kind of life of its own because it's always being reused and appropriated and represented by the next generation of poets. So even though the poet dies, um, he lives on in the new poetry of succeeding generations, um, and that gives it a kind of immortality. So there's just one further sonnet that I'd like to consider this evening, um, and that's sonnet 63. That time of year thou mayst in me behold When yellow leaves, or none, or few Do hang upon those boughs which shake against the cold 
Bare ruined choirs Where late the sweet birds sang In me thou seest the twilight Of such day as after sunset Fadeth in the west Which by and by black night doth take away Death's second self That seals up all in rest in me thou seest the glowing of such fire that on the ashes of his youth doth lie, as the deathbed whereon it must expire, consumed with that which it was nourished by. This thou perceivest, which makes thy love more strong, to love that well which thou must leave ere long. So, again, it's a poem in which personification abounds. And all sorts of comparisons are explored. The, tree is like a, uh, the poet is like a tree with his decaying, worn-out verses. Um, the leaves are of a book, and the leaves are also the leaves on the tree, and they're being dispersed by the wind. The poet's coming to the end of his creative life, um, just as the tree is coming to the end of a cycle when it loses its leaves. So the old man likens himself to a tree in winter and his leaves, the leaves of his poems, are falling. And images of time, of light and of fire are all brought into very interesting relationship. I think the rhythms of the first line, by its pauses, um, almost suggests the, the blowing away of the leaves, the last resistant fading leaves um, being blown by the autumn or winter wind. I don't remember if I... Yeah. That time of year thou mayst in me behold when yellow leaves or none or few do hang. Gilgood, I think, reads it much better than me. Um, with those pauses that you know are almost like waiting for the leaf um, to be blown off. Now, there's, I, I, by way of example of personification being one of the many aspects of rhetoric that essentially brings things into relationship, one thing being represented by another thing. And so many of the figures of rhetoric are essentially about bringing things into relationship. A simile, when you say something is like something else, brings those two things into relationship. Likewise, a metaphor, likewise, rhyme is bringing things into relationship. And um, an exposition, which is a brilliant exposition, I think, of line four... Um, bare ruined choirs where late the sweet birds sang. It's a very famous line, um, and it's brilliantly glossed by William Empson in his classic Seven Types of Ambiguity. And he says, The fundamental situation, whether it deserves to be called ambiguous or not, is that a word or a grammatical structure is effective in several ways at once. To take a famous example, there is no pun, double syntax, or dubiety, uncertainty, of feeling in that line, bare ruined choirs where late the sweet birds sang. But the comparison holds, he goes on to say, for many reasons, because ruined monastery choirs, it's part of the building, ruined monastery choirs are places in which to sing because they involve sitting in a row, because they're made of wood, are carved into knots, and so forth, 
because they used to be surrounded by a sheltering building crystallised out of the likeness of a forest. The architecture itself um, draws on um, the shapes, the images of nature, a forest, and coloured with stained glass and painting like flowers and leaves because they are now abandoned by all but the grey walls coloured like the skies of winter because the cold and narcissistic charm because of the cold, narcissistic charm suggested by choir boys suits well with Shakespeare's feeling for the object of the sonnets. And for various sociological and historical reasons, the Protestant destruction of the monasteries, so the choir is all that's left exposed to the elements, the destruction of monasteries, the fear of Puritanism, which it would be hard now to trace out in their proportions, These readings and many more relating the simile to its place in the sonnet must all combine to give the line its beauty. And there is a sort of ambiguity in not knowing which of them to hold most clearly in mind. Clearly this is involved in all such richness and heightening of effect and the machinations of ambiguity are among the very roots of poetry. Um, Empson was an English literary critic and poet, um, very much an advocate of the close reading of of poetry um, and therefore fundamental to what became known as the new criticism. Seven Types of Ambiguity was written in 1930. Well, the, the richness and heightening of effect which Empson describes is the effect not just of imagery and what he terms various sociological and historical reasons, but also, of course, of all the poetic techniques which are intertwined from personification to rhyme. Rhyme is one of the myriad ways in which um, poetry and the rigours of the sonnet form in particular create these associations. In Sonnet 73, we have west and rest, fire and expire, strong and long. And they're all meaningful in the sense that when the sun sets in the west, we rest. Fire causes all manner of things to expire. And the rhyme of the final couplet is perhaps the richest of all. The strength of love acquests with a longing. And the final line takes us, of course, back to the beginning of the poem, the sense in which everything is part of a cycle. Um, we have the plosi leave from the verb to leave, echoing the leaves of the second line. And there's a touch of blackmail here. Um, Essentially, the poet's saying, love me as much as you can. Um, I won't be here much longer. And with my departure, so the writing of poems about you and to you will cease. Um, These are brilliant poems, best explained, I think, in terms of their myriad associations and the attendant ambiguities that all these associations create. There's no simple reading of any of these sonnets because so much is being associated. There are so many ways in which the language is bound together. Now, some of the associations are made very explicit, um, sometimes simply by the syntax of the poetry. Um, Others are more mysterious um, or even far-fetched, perhaps. Um, I'm particularly fond of Sonnet 60 um, and its opening line, like as the waves make toward the pebbled shore. Maybe because I loved playing in waves um, when I was a small child, 
Um, I enjoyed the rhythm of jumping to try and keep my head above water and the myriad sounds that accompany that, um, that play, the sound of foam and the spray and the winds and so on, whipping up the surface of the water. But I think there are linguistic reasons too why I particularly love those lines and have for a very long time. The syntax introduces a simile like as, and it delays the meaning. Now, one of the funny things about simile is that one thing is likened to another thing, but one actually dominates um, in terms of... Perhaps I should just go back... Um, so here we have like as the waves make toward the pebbled shore but we know that it's the second part of this that's going to bring the meaning that the poet doesn't really want to talk about the waves and the pebbled shore he wants to talk about the passage of time now it could be the other way around in a sense it could be just as our minutes hasten to their end so the waves hasten towards the shore and we would know that what predominated in the simile is the idea of the passage of time, the minutes passing. But by reversing it, we're left to wait almost as the wave waits to break, like as the waves make towards the pebbled shore. And we know that what the poet really wants to emphasise is going to come like the wave breaking, so do our minutes hasten to their end. That's that's the earnest point, and, and the waves and the shore, in a sense, are the wonderful image that introduces um, that. I mean, a, a writer who uses simile brilliantly is Marcel Proust. One of the things he does is that he, he plays around with this idea that the simile has sort of a weightier and a less weighty side, so, but sometimes he reverses it, and what he's appealed to in the simile becomes the subject, um, and it's, it's delightful um, to see it at work. So, yeah, so to finish, I just want to suggest that in reading these very difficult poems, but also these poems which set up quite extraordinary associations of all manner of different sorts, not just within each sonnet, but actually within the sonnets as you... Um, read them through, um, is that our engagement with poetry, um, and I think everybody engages slightly differently, and that's not to say that everything's up for grabs in terms of the meaning of the sonnet, um, but the kinds of associations that we're aware of will depend on our own experience of, of the world. Um, and so one far-fetched um, idea that I, I just want to mention is that our association of time and water is a very, very ancient one. Um, and essentially, these first two lines are about the association of the movement of water and time. Um, and, of course, the, the Greeks um, had clocks, um, and they called them Clysebdra, um, meaning the thief of time... Uh, sorry, the thief of water. And water clocks... Um, what they meant by the water thief was a water clock. Um, and, of course, they are clocks that measure time either in terms of inflow, how much water's come into a vessel, which is then measured, or outflow, how much has come out of it. And, of course, they're 
amongst the oldest time-measuring machines, instruments. And where or when they were invented, nobody knows. Um, The bowl-shaped outflow um, is the simplest form of clock. Oh, there we are. Um, And these are known to have existed in Babylon and in Egypt around the 16th century before the Common Era, um, a very, very long time ago. And this worked. um, It it has perforations, holes on the inside, and obviously as the water level goes down, um, so you could read the hours. Uh, Very simple, very accurate, um, but had to be filled up all the time. Uh, It didn't last terribly long. Um, and then much more complex timepieces. Um, this one, um, so the, the little man uh, is the indicator of the time with the arrow, and that part of the machine goes down, so the one marked D. So that means that he begins to fall, so his arrow is pointing at different times. And at the same time, the water that's displaced turns this wheel at the bottom, which turns a cog which turns the pole to which he's indicating. Um, So this was, again, a very accurate um, way of measuring time, um, dependent on water. Um, So two two very, very different inventions, um, but both to do with ways in which we can control water um, to measure time. So I think, for some readers, this kind of association may or may not be part of the reading process. But I think the sonnets allow us to appeal to all sorts of very ancient um, aspects of our humanity and our experience of the world, our experience of time and the measurement of time and so on. Um, You may think that's far-fetched. But I think it's fair to say that what, to some, have seemed like a very simple juvenile wooden um, trope, personification, um, is an immensely important animating force in the sonnets. Um, Just going back to sonnet 70, we have Black Knight likened to Death's second self, both personified, seal, sealing up, or in rest. In other words, Knight is personified sealing us up or entombing us in sleep, just as death, personified, will result in us being sealed up or entombed. To finish this lecture, um, I read a great many quotations, some lengthy and some brief, in praise of Shakespeare's sonnets. And the best, in my view, is by his friend and rival Ben Jonson, who said... He was not of an age, but for all time. He was not of an age, but for all time. And if I may dare tweak Johnson, I'd say he was both of an age and for all time. He was of an age, very much of an age, um, and in some ways remote from us. And there are all sorts of aspects of Shakespeare the man and his experience and his poetry which remain mysterious to us in many ways. But at the same time, he is for all time, because I think we can still engage with these poems um, and find them immensely enriching. Thank you.
For more information, please go to www.gresham.ac.uk.